Hi, I'm Porig Walsh, and you're very welcome to the podcast series all about this. Our mission is to explore the subject of disability in Ireland today. I'll be chatting with people with exceptional ability, their families, policymakers, and clinicians working in the field. We hope that these conversations will inform, inspire, and sometimes challenge current thinking on disability. We're all about this, and we're glad that you are too. Coming up on today's episode. So what will a 40-year-old have looked like, you know, when we started this study in 2008 versus in 2020? Will their lives look very different? Will their health look very different? And will they be visible within our communities and contributing within our communities? We talked to Professor Mary McCarran about her important work and research on growing old with a disability in Ireland. Porig and Professor McCarran have more. All about this. Today at All About This, we're delighted to be joined by Professor Mary McCarran of Trinity College. Professor McCarran has been leading research into what it's like to grow old with a disability in Ireland. This research is part of the Irish Longitudinal Study on Ageing, or TILDA, and has been going on for the past number of years. So thank you for joining us today, Mary. Thank you. Mary, can you tell us a little bit about the research that you and your team have been carrying out? Yes, I have been involved in a series of of studies really looking at uh, factors influencing the health and well-being of people with an intellectual disability as they grow old. Uh, The first body of work that I really was involved in was looking at people with Down syndrome and looking at risk factors uh, for for dementia. We know that this is a population who experienced a premature ageing and particularly early age of onset of of Alzheimer's dementia. And this is an, an increasing concern. I think here we have a population of people with intellectual disability who are living to old age. And this is certainly something that we should celebrate. This is the first time in history that this population has has lived, and particularly those with Down syndrome. We must remember that back in the 1930s, the average life expectancy for somebody with Down syndrome was nine years. Now people with Down syndrome can live to their 50s, 60s and even their 70s. Uh, but there is a, an increased risk of, 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 of poor health and particular premature ageing uh, in this population as they grow old. So my first body of work really for the last probably 25 to 30 years has particularly focused on dementia in this population, looking at the risk factors for Alzheimer's dementia and, and most critically, how we support this increasingly at-risk population as they age and develop dementia. How do we develop uh, appropriate services? How do we provide good care in the community? How do we provide support to families who wish to support their loved one in the family home? And these are all key and critical issues. Uh, What is really important to remember is that the mean age of Alzheimer's disease or dementia in people with Down syndrome is about 51 years. We know I've just, uh, uh, will be publishing a paper within the next few months where I have followed a cohort of people for 20 years with Down syndrome. And what I have, what will be reporting is that the risk of dementia increased from about 40% in, in those age 50 years to all, over 80% when people came to 65 years and older. So here we're talking about a population who have about an, an over an 80% risk of developing Alzheimer's disease as they reach the age of 65. And we know this in the general population that the risk of developing dementia is about 4.3 to 8.3% in people aged 65 and over. So we're looking at contrastingly different prevalence rates. 
But my concern, of course, is that we have had a, a, a lot of interest in an, um, the general population around uh, brain health and around prevention preventing premature ageing and particularly dementia. So this must happen for this population as well. And it's more critical in this population because we know that the risk is they have a genetic risk loading, so the risk is high. So we need to be looking. We, we certainly know that things like education, uh, keeping your brain active, uh, social connectedness, physical activity, um, uh, reducing levels of obesity, all of these things are critical for good brain health. So this is really important that people with Down syndrome are involved in such initiatives. What has the research found to be the main differences between the lives of people with disability and the rest of the population as they get older? Um, just before I, I go to speak to that, um, Padraig, I do want to speak. So that was the first body of work that I was doing in looking at Down syndrome. And then, of course, 10 years ago, we, as, 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 as Ireland, were launching their longitudinal study on ageing for the general population, TILDA. Um, at that time, I felt it was critical that people with intellectual disability were also included in a study of this nature. And we, ha- we are now, we mounted and are now running the intellectual disability supplement to TILDA. So this is charting the health and well-being of people with an intellectual disability aged 40 years and over. Um, and I think the major strength, this is the first time that any country in the world, despite the number of longitudinal studies on ageing that have happened all around the world, none of them have ever included a population of people uh, with intellectual disability. Um, so uh, I think Ireland is really leading the way in this area. So we are following 10% of the total intellectual disability population in Ireland and really trying to understand what are the key determinants of health and well-being as this population age. And then how do they compare to an age match population in the general population? So this is, is really important. And, and how did they compare to the age match so population? Things that were different and things were the same. I think it was interesting. I mean similar to the general population, um, people perceive themselves to be in generally in good health, uh, which I think is positive. Um, most people, uh, the perceptions of ageing for people with intellectual disability uh, was pretty similar to that of the general population. I think what was a different was uh, certainly the patterns of, of what we were called health comorbidities. So that pattern of health conditions was different. So people with an intellectual disability had uh, more um, health conditions at an earlier age than the general population and the patterns of those was different. So what was very interesting was that in the general population we talk a lot about disease pairs uh, so we talk a lot about cardiovascular disease and stroke and stroke and diabetes. People with intellectual disability, we were seeing a different pattern. So, for example, hypertension was almost 50% lower in people with intellectual disability than it was in the general population, despite the fact that the risk factors in terms of overweight and obesity were really high. Heart attack was three times lower than we've seen in the general population. But other conditions, as I mentioned, such as Alzheimer's disease, mental health conditions were much higher. Polypharmacy, which is 10 or more medications, excessive polypharmacy, 10 or more medications, was seen in the, was reported in people with intellectual disability at 22% versus 2% for those in the general population. 
So we've seen probably over-prescribing in some areas and indeed under-prescribing in other areas where we had conditions like chronic eye disease and other diseases where we would have probably feel there's probably an over an under-prescribing in some of those areas. But psychotropic medications and of course high prevalence of things like epilepsy in this population resulted in, 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 in many more being prescribed anti-epileptic medication which was which you you would probably expect. Other things as well, I think that were really of concern, was um, uh, over forty five percent of this population reported having a doctor's diagnosis of a mental health problem. I think it's really important that we try and get under the bonnet of what that really means. So we have been doing uh, and expanded the protocol significantly in Wave Three to try and get a better understanding. Uh, you know, is this many of the mental health problems? Are they driven by environmental factors? Are they driven by healthcare con- health problems that people are not able to report? Uh, so, for instance, we asked people about pain in, 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 in earlier waves, in wave two. And many people with intellectual disability reported having significant pain in the feet, in their legs, in their back. Um, we then, in, in, in wave two, thought we would do objective measures of, of, of bone density, similar to what Tilda had done. So I, we were very interested in looking at issues like uh, undiagnosed conditions such as osteoporosis or arthritis. And what we found, which I think is really concerning, is that we had a doctor's diagnosis of osteoporosis in wave one at 8%. This increased to about 16% in wave two. Uh, Obviously, when people were asked, it it probably prompted people to go and have a test done. But when we did objective measure of of, of bone density using the quantitative heel ultrasound, we found actually that 70% of older adults with an intellectual disability had poor bone health. Over 40% of them had osteoporosis and over 30% of them had osteopenia, uh, which is really brittle bone. And very few, almost 100% of men with osteoporosis had not had a doctor's diagnosis. And only 7 out of 10 women with uh, objectively measured osteoporosis, only 3 of them had a doctor's diagnosis. That's some really interesting research. (laughs) Clearly very in-depth research and you can it just rolls off the tongue for you, which which is great. What factors have you noticed that have contributed to the differences between the typically developing population and their, their, the, these kinds of outcomes and those for people with intellectual disability? Well, I think, you know, when it comes to things like Alzheimer's disease, of course, we know that they have a genetic loading simply because, uh, you know, this population have three copies of a chromosome, chromosome 21. And we now know that the gene that produces beta amyloid in all of our systems is located on this chromosome. So they have an overproduction uh, and, and that produce, puts them at greater risk. But we also know that this is a population, you know, this current cohort are, are ageing, I think, at a particular historic point in time. And their ageing is very much influenced by the history of our past. So it's really interesting to know what is the role of, of uh, you know, lack of education, perhaps, and of living circumstances. Um, uh, and how does that influence uh, even issues like, like like brain health as this population grow older. 
Um, we also know that uh, if you were to look at something like like bone health, for instance, uh, we know that this population, physical activity is generally low. There's high levels of obesity. But we also had a population who were on high um, levels of medication, and particularly the anti-epileptic medication, which, which inhibits uh, calcium absorption and, and interferes with, with, with bone metabolism. So we have a population here who have greater risk loading for many of the common conditions. But it's really interesting as well as to why some conditions are underexpressed. For instance, it's not all bad news. For people with Down syndrome, we see, for instance, that there's a much lower level of, of solid tumours than we see in the general population. It's really interesting to know why is it that hypertension and heart attack are lower, despite the fact that this population have a much higher risk loading in terms of inactivity, overweight and obesity. So there are clearly differences in in health and risk factors in, in, in both populations. But I think an interesting difference as well that we see in this population, and, and as I said, it probably it very much relates back to where this popu- the history of, of life and, and living for this population, where many of them are population were segregated from the communities and from their families historically. Um, so now what we see is that people who are older with an intellectual disability are much less likely than the general population to live in the same community as their family member. The data yielded by TILDA for the general population showed that as people got older in the general population that they were much more likely to live or to move or their family member was more likely to move to live in their same community. We've seen the direct opposite for people who are ageing with an intellectual disability, that they were much less likely to live in the same community. And equally critical and important was that those with more severe to profound levels of intellectual disability were even more, were less likely to live in the same community as, as, a, as a family member. And of course, we know that things like contact with family and friends, social connectedness, these are key and fundamental to health and quality of life as people age. It's interesting that not only are you taking into account the health factors that are impacting on people with disability, but also their quality of life factors. And you notice that very few people with disabilities have a say in their key life decisions, with only 16% of themselves choosing where they live and only 13% of them choosing what type of support they receive. Why are these figures so low? I think that is really interesting. Um, and despite the fact, as you rightly say, that you know many of this population had, had reported having person-centred plans, so few of them were involved in key decisions which affected their lives, such as where they lived, who they lived with. And despite the fact that people moved from... Um, more congregated type settings into community, it was really interesting to me that so few of them had any say in who they lived with or where they lived or even viewed alternative living accommodation. 
Um, so I think we have, um, uh, I think these are important issues and as, as we continue and should continue to move people from, from restrictive settings into more community-based alternatives, we must support people in, in those decisions. And I think it really is important that we understand the relationships that people have and the criticalness of those relationships in the lives of people with intellectual disability. And indeed, many have developed very close relationships with staff and would, 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 would often, would quite often have said that they were the group that they really confided in and uh, were important to them in their lives, as indeed were people who they had lived with for quite a significant number of years. Many of this older cohort perhaps had lived with, with a group for, for a long time. We did find that it's really interesting that people with disabilities require these supports and actually flourish where they live with people that they know and love and can build relationships with and and family are central to that. So I find that really interesting that as opposed to getting closer to others as they get older, they actually move further away. Yeah, this is this is key. And I think what was really interesting, I suppose we're living in a, a, a technology age. And uh, many of this population have, are, are, it, it does appear in some ways that technology just bypassed this generation. So even though people did have phones and some people had access to phones, they weren't using phones in the way that me or you might use them in terms of texting people, Facebooking people, using Skype using all of these forms of, of, of technology that for the rest of us are hugely critical to us in maintaining social relationships. So I think for younger generations it is key that the, this is, is core and central to, to the lives and, and perhaps I think it will be. Uh, but nonetheless, I think we have to, we, we, uh, we are dealing, we're supporting now a population who are, are ageing, as I said, in this historic point in time. And we've got to support them now to... I feel that they have been let down by the system before and I really urge that this doesn't happen to them again. So that when we move people out into the community, that there is the type of supports available in the community to support them live meaningful and valued lives. And that being in the community in itself in no way equates to living in the community. And we need to really understand what does community mean. Community is not just about geographical location. Community is about friends, it's about relationships, and it's about connectedness. And we need to ensure that we have the right supports available in place when people move to sustain previously valid relationships and to support people to make new relationships. And I think that is really important. This is a population as well who don't have many assets. So they don't have a lot of money to enjoy or to live the type of life, perhaps, that are pensions or or resources that other people have. So we need to understand, actually, like as I'm looking now at the financial resource that many people have, you could really say that they really are living in poverty in many ways in terms of having a disposable income that they can use to engage in the type of pursuits pursuits that perhaps the rest of us might wish to enjoy. It's, it's funny when you mention there about the social supports that people have. And from your research, you notice that staff 
were some of the most important social supports for older people with disabilities. And I suppose in your role as director of nursing, you, you train a lot of people to be good social supports for, for individuals. Knowing this, what kind of qualities should a person supporting a person with disabilities have? Well, I think key to supporting people is to have really good communication skills, really to have an attitude where you're there really to empower people to live the lives that they want to lead. And I think that has to be fundamentally fundamental principle underpinning any of the programs that we have in training healthcare professionals, whether these are nurses, whether these are social care leaders, etc. That really that we are here as people who support people to lead the life that they live, but also maximise their abilities to do that by through education, through empowerment programmes and really train, educating and supporting people to take control of their own lives. But also to recognise that there will be cohorts of people with intellectual disability who will require very different levels of support. But we must aspire for a good life. I just want to ask you about the impact that you'd like to see this research having on future government policy for people with disability, and particularly older people with disabilities. Where do you anticipate this research having a real impact on this policy? Well, I think for the first time now that we will have really good data which will help us to evaluate key objectives set out both at government policy at a national level but also at an international and UN level. So if we were to look at the key targets and objectives set without the type of this type of research we have no way at all of understanding if we have ever achieved or met those targets. So will government policy, how will it, will it lead to a better life? So I am hoping that, and I'm hopeful that this, the data here will really not only, it will help to underpin policy moving forward, it will provide good data for evidence-based policy making and evidence-based decision making. And also really good data for which we can monitor the key objectives set out in national policy. You carry out IDS TILDA research in 20 years' time. What differences would you like to see in the lives of people with disability? Well, I think it'll be hugely interesting. It'll give us the opportunity to look at what will be the intergenerational differences. So what will a 40-year-old have looked like, you know, when we started this study in 2008 versus perhaps in 2020? So will their lives look very different? Will their health look very different? Will their aspirations and will... Will, will, will communities' aspirations for, the, and will the, for people with intellectual disability look different? And will they be visible within our communities and contributing within our communities? And that's really, I suppose, what I, the, the fundamental shift. Uh, I would also like to see that I think that people with intellectual disability will be out there much more visible, advocating and, and really driving very much a rights-based agenda in relation to, to, to the lives and the opportunities that they have. I hope that I will see people who will be retiring from paid employment. We have only got about 6% of this population were in, ever in paid employment. I hope that I will see people who will be engaged in lifelong learning 
Very few of this population currently are engaged in any type of lifelong learning. I hope that people who are enrolled in this study will be graduates, not only of, of secondary school, but also of third level education. I hope I will be seeing people who actually are owning their own houses, are married, perhaps have children. All of the other issues that we aspire for the rest of society. So I would like to see differences less. Professor McCarran, we appreciate you joining us today and for your important work on behalf of people with disabilities. We look forward to hearing more from you as this research continues and we'd like to thank you for being all about this. Thank you. We're all about this! And that's it for this episode of All About This. Remember, you can get in touch and continue the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter and find out more on allaboutthis.com. Thanks to our producer, Amy O'Dwyer at Trees Road Productions. Until next time, thanks for listening.